When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm happy to have with me Rob Sheffield and Brittany Spanos. And we haven't done a Taylor episode this year. That needs to be rectified, so we are rectifying Way it. too long. It's, <laughs> it's painful. <laughs> and we have a couple of great excuses to do a Taylor episode. One is the impending release of Taylor's Red, Taylor's version, and also is the already happened release of Rob Sheffield's new and updated list of the greatest Taylor Swift songs. Rob's version. Or, uh, Rob's <laughs> version. Rob's version of Taylor's version, yes. <laughs> That's right. Are you going to immediately update it again with the Red Taylor's version release? Well, yes, absolutely. But for her to be doing this completely unprecedented like rewriting of her past, she's invaded the time-space continuum and violated the prime directive. So now like everything is, you know, everything is off. A throwaway cut from 2008 can now sound better than ever because it's better in the re-recorded version. So it's completely weird that like with Red, this is the iceberg that we're all waiting to hit and nobody knows what the damage is going to be. And there's at least 10 new songs, I believe. I think 12? Okay. Yeah. Including so- a second version of the number one song on the list, a longer yes, the, version. The infamous 10-minute All Too Well. The 10-minute uh, version, Taylor's version of All Too Well, which could, I don't know, I don't know, Rob, maybe, it might be able to take over the original version of All Too Well. I walked through the door with you, the air was cold, but something about it felt like... You know, depending on how different it is, it might take over number one and bump the original version to number two. So that like two competing <laughs> It'll all be too wells. Three all too wells. There's also like the re-recorded version of the original version. So the oh top God, three yes. is just three all too wells. <laughs> and as, she, as she continues over the years to release longer and longer versions of all too well, they can each bump until eventually much like Agent Smith in The Matrix. Your list is made up entirely of different versions of all too well. Absolutely. I think she should now have, you know, a 20 minute version just, you know, Picturing what, how the scarf has traveled over, over those past 10 years. Before we dig into the list, let's talk a little bit more about the Taylor's version. We've had one album so far. She is clearly incredibly devoted to this project. She's not going to stop till she's finished. The order in which they're coming out is really interesting to me. It's obviously far from chronological. Yeah, I think she's really going with um, the album, you know, Fearless, what won her a Grammy for Album of the Year, like one of her best-selling albums. Obviously, we talk about Red in 1989 as a kind of pop moments for her, but Love Story, a single like that, really set the tone for what she was capable of doing later in her career. We were both young when I first saw you. I closed my eyes and the flashback starts. I'm standing- that song being such a big crossover hit and kind of taking her to the next level, making her not just like a flash in the pan, like teen prodigy was such a big moment for her so to start with fearless feels um like it was really appropriate 
and to follow it up with red and especially the timing of being able to release red in the autumn you know it's it's all good it's all like a good good vibe even though i think people were sort of torn between whether that or 1989 would come next after fearless but it seems like 1989 is logically going to be the third album that she re-releases because of the wildest dreams single coming out and also she's been been spotted in new york um like a gossip girl character recording with with antonoff which would be very appropriate (laughs) i also wonder whether she's not like super psyched about having to do the debut or maybe she's most excited, but I think for any artist, that must be a very bizarre experience to, to re-record your debut, especially in her case when she was super young. Not that it isn't great, but, you know, that, that's a bizarre prospect. Yeah, and I could see her saving that one for last. I mean, I I feel like Reputation has to come last because that was the most recent album. Like, it kind of feels like a weird thing to re-record since it just came out, you know, a few years ago. But it would also be kind of nice for her to end with the self-titled because that's the one where we're going to see the biggest changes in her vocal performance because it's literally half her life has passed since then. She's changed so much as a songwriter, like, and as a singer and a performer. So it's it's going to be kind of weird and funny for everyone to hear it, but I'm, I'm excited for that. Yeah, we, we all want to hear her go back to the your mama don't know sort of <laughs> accent. Uh, that, you know, the Southern accent that she started singing with, uh, which she, you know, she has playfully brought back periodically on, I think, pretty much all her albums since then. But something really kind of beautiful and bringing it full circle about doing the debut as the last one. But I wonder if that's why she'll she'll mix it up because she always likes to catch people unprepared. She's devious and evil. <laughs> she hasn't actually right. She hasn't actually stated the timeline. For all we know, you know, maybe she's going to save the debut for when she's fifty years old. Like the debut and reputation come out in like twenty years. <laughs> just this ongoing process, just putting the final nail in the coffin of the purchasers of the catalog. Twenty years. And from uh, now. that's the kind of that's the part that I think everyone's still sort of figuring out because there is sort of a necessity, right, to what the project is where releasing them as soon as possible makes the most sense in terms of regaining ownership over these songs and also, you know, taking over from the original searches, right? Like the original versions are no longer owned by her. So therefore like releasing Reputation, the self-titled like right away makes sense. But it's also like, again, same with Reputation that came out so recently and even Red sort of feels so recent in a lot of ways, but also I think the way that she's rolled this out and having the From the Vault songs be on there really makes it feel like a, a brand new package. Also, there's nothing to compare it to, like in terms of figuring out her timeline or anything, because nobody's tried this kind of insane project before. I mean, it's completely bizarre. It's like if Paul McCartney in the 70s just went back and redid I've Just Seen a Face, you know, like Rubber Soul, John Paul, George and Ringo's version. But for an artist to go back after like a, a creative journey like this of 15 years and redo their songs... The traditional old way to do this was with a live album, but there was a certain Mm -hmm. slackness built into that. It wasn't like you were remaking the album. And it's just this completely audacious project that anybody would have warned her against, but, you know, she's totally committed to it. And as it happens, Fearless has been like one of the year's blockbusters. It's the number Mm -hmm. two best-selling album of this year. The only thing keeping it from being number one is Evermore, her album from a year ago. Like, it's completely insane to have the one and two albums of the year be the 31-year-old artist and then her teenage self. That's completely nuts. And do a full rollout. 
a full yeah. rollout too, which is the craziest part. She's doing SNL for Red, and you know she did really has been releasing singles. Like it's not just like she's dropping them whenever we're like getting Easter eggs and like TikToks, and it's <laughs> it's a, like a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff that she's doing to roll these out while recording the next ones. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Yeah, the SNL thing is unprecedented, and it speaks to the extent to which he's really going for it on this. A couple points on that. I mean, first of all, what this ends up being is the kind of dig through the archives project, albeit not usually accompanied by a full re-recording of everything, but it's the kind of dig through the archives project that sort of our legacy artists usually get to in the third decade of their career for the box set. You know, there's something like that began with Biograph for Bob Dylan. I hate to uh, just bring up these sort of male classic rock artists, but these are previously the people who tended to do this. Uh, Springsteen, Neil Young, like these are all people who much later started going through their archives and digging up this sort of from the vault stuff. Uh, And she's doing it sort of now at this interesting midpoint in her career after really, I think, establishing a whole new potential direction for her music on her, not just her last two albums, I would say the last three albums really stand as this, uh, the beginning of, of what could be a really dramatic turning point. The other thing that's worth pointing out is there have been other artists who threatened to do this. Prince said he was going to do this for all his Warner Brothers albums. And even Prince, for all his work ethic, abandoned the project. Even Prince didn't do it. And you know that Taylor is committed to this. This is going to happen. And there's been other people. I mean, I will say legendarily, uh, apparently Axl Rose made his new version of Guns N' Roses re-record Appetite for Destruction. Uh, but it's never been heard. Only a little bit of the sweet child of mine. Like, just to teach them to be Guns N' Roses, he did actually re-record all of Guns N' But even Axel didn't make them do uh, Use Your Illusion. He's like, I can't listen to all that shit again. Like, <laughs> um, but anyway, it is an extraordinary project. Before we move to the list, what are we looking forward to most besides a 10-minute All Too Well from the uh, from the Red Taylor's, ver- Taylor's version? I mean, I've been really looking forward to her versions of Better Man and Babe. You know, that was kind of an early period of Taylor writing songs for for other artists. And those songs came out much later than the the Red Era. Uh, like, well, not much later, but like a few years later after the Red Era. And I love those songs in their original incarnations. But I also am very excited for the Taylor version. I love that she wrote a song with the lead singer of Train. As a Train stan, it was a big moment for me personally. <laughs> I hope she remakes her version of Drops of Jupiter from the Speak Now Live DVD. Uh, we need <laughs> it. Yes. Fantastic <laughs> version. Yeah, she's going to remake all her live DVDs too, just, just to show. Just, just, <laughs> just a to great flex. idea. <laughs> just note by note recreations. Uh, yeah. Dunking on the planet. I love it. 
I'm looking forward to just the fact that she, you know, you know, she got Gary Lightbody of Snow Patrol back to re-record the last time. Like, there's no doubt. Other people yeah. might be just like, oh fuck it, I'll just do the whole thing myself or or get someone else or something. But you know that Gary Lightbody, possibly not even remotely, she may have been standing side by side with Gary. Really great guy, by the way. I've talked to him not not long ago, and Gary's back at the white hot center of pop, thanks to <laughs> thanks to <laughs> the re-release of this duet. Of course, she, I'm sure she got Ed Sheeran back for Everything Has Changed. It would be interesting, you know, like, I wonder if, you know, would she get Max Martin and Shellback back to help her recreate the tracks? Probably, right? I think she ended up working with Jack and with Nathan. Or not with Nathan, sorry. For the Nathan Chapman tracks, tracks she worked with Jack and with um, with Aaron on the re-record for Fearless. I know that. So I'm not sure, like, if she got them back. I would assume that she would get back Max and Shell back, though. But I know she, it feels like it's been sort of insular in terms of, like, re-recording with some of more her more recent people. The last thing is, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the impact is on her new songwriting to take in such a deep dive into everything she did previously. In the case of those classic rock artists I was talking about, they all would say, oh, you know, I went back to my second album and found the outtakes and it reminded me of the way I used to do it. You know, I mean, there's it doesn't just happen. It always ends up impacting you. So I think that's really interesting, especially as she's clearly moving forward. Yeah, it's not like she reached a, a, a point where she was stagnating. So she said, let's do this project. I mean, she started doing it in her spare time. I mean, she started doing it and announced it at a time when we all thought she was about to do a lover fest. You know, she was going to be going back and doing live shows. This, You know, she started this long before anybody knew there was going to be a pandemic. And it's like really kind of crazy that this is something that she always just penciled in for her spare time. But when she begins a big project like this, she she does not bail. And I wonder how much it already factored in to Folklore and Evermore, which are albums really steeped in teen experiences and like, teen romance gone wrong. Um, you know, there's a whole arc on folklore about that. And all that feels very reminiscent of her early albums and her own early experiences, but through the perspective of these fictional characters. So I feel like especially since she sort of, she had to wait a year basically to start recording it. She, I think, I don't think she could start recording until last fall, I believe. And so I wonder how much of just like listening back on those early albums already affected the way that she was writing the two albums we got last year that, again, are still are still so much dominating um, this year. It's a great point. And, and when you hear Taylor's version of something like 15, and a lot of people have made this point, I mean, that's a, you really can hear the difference of the person singing it. It's a whole different tone. And it's actually a great example how something so unspoken, there's nothing that you can point to where it sounds like someone, you know, much older singing it, but you can feel it, you know, you can feel the difference in the emotional tone in which she's, I think that's a song that definitely gains an additional power in the re-record. It's her both sides now moment, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and on a level that she couldn't have imagined when she actually made Fearless, these are songs that belong to the world. On the most public level, these are not her songs, you know, very personal song when she wrote 15, but you know, that song belongs to the world now. So there's something about her singing it as just another fan of the song. But it's really amazing how the whole thing of like going back and re-inhabiting these 
these songs, even the ones that are throwaways. Great example is The Other Side of the Door, you know, which is a song that it just sounded like, you know, she was putting like all her favorite Taylor tropes, her favorite Taylor images in a song. It's like, yeah, I'm going to have staring at a phone and I'm going to have a photo album and maybe like a dress and it's raining outside and maybe somebody's throwing pebbles at the window from a passing car, you know, put all the Taylor tropes in one song. And at the time, it seemed like it was a rough draft for songs that she did much better versions of when she went on to keep making records and keep writing songs. But, you know, going back to it as an adult, she finds more in the song than, than she had to give it back then. When you really ponder the amount of work remaking these albums, I mean, Red has so much live band stuff. This is not a minor undertaking. It's wild. You know, that's like when, you know, when Dave Grohl told me about it. Of course, Dave Grohl didn't read about it somewhere like someone in Taylor's band who we met at a party had to tell him about it. But when he heard about it, he was just, he was truly in awe at the just, because someone like that knows how much work it is. Like he like, he literally couldn't believe it because it's, it's just, it's a daunting, daunting enterprise it's daunting enough just to write about them all rob she's re-recording all of them i mean that's, <laughs> compare the effort who, who but who worked harder really you right i mean it's when you look at it well it's, it's like you know there's like there's all the different versions of it add up to you know the song the work the, the ontological entity and yet it's completely bizarre that you know for her to sing today is a fairy tale as a teenager or her to sing it as a 30 something like completely different experiences yeah. Now, Rob, you just did this list a few years ago, and now it's twice as long. So this has been an extremely productive period for Ms. Taylor Swift. Completely insane. The first time I did this list four years ago, there were 112 songs on it. And that was right before Reputation came out. And since then, she's doubled that total, you know, brings it up to 199, which is a nice number. Um but, you know, she's going to pass that, you know, in a couple of weeks. And who knows, she might have another album out of new material by Christmas. Wouldn't put it past her. Tis the damn season every season. We're never safe. Never safe. You know, there's wonderful uh, interview Aaron Dessner did uh, with Taylor with Rolling Stone, where he was talking about making Evermore. And he said that uh, he was making breakfast at the little studio cottage and, and she came up. I forget which song it was. I think it might have been Happiness. And... She came up with him with the idea for the song and they like just wrote it in the kitchen making breakfast. That's the pace her creative mind moves at is, you know, just in the middle of breakfast, you're going to get clobbered with a new song. <laughs> you're never safe. It's pretty rare for a solo artist to produce at this rate. And, and it did occur to me that the brilliance of the way she uses collaborators is it, it's it's like she's been in a million bands. It's like she's gotten to join all these little bands, always as the front woman, always as the leader. But, you know, just to have these these little, sometimes literal little bands of collaborators, it's obviously just a phenomenal method. Not always no, speak, speak now. Obviously, is an exception. But she's just very efficient at generating all this brilliance. No less than Billy Joel just compared her to the Beatles. Billy Joel correctly said that I won't quote his whole statement because some of it came off as weirdly condescending. But but the good part was I could feel part of his sort of, I could even sense a bit of resentment in the sense that she is so wildly productive and producing great stuff. And, and I think what he was expressing was just, you know, you, it's extraordinary and rare to put out this kind of output of classic material in this brief period. It's It's... I hate the phrase imperial phase, but this is one of the longest imperial phases in the existence of pop music, right? 
Maybe he's warning her that working too hard can give you a heart attack. <laughs> um, but, but Billy, you know, Billy Joel himself, you know, like definitely like a songwriter who still stands for, you know, we've talked about Olivia Rodrigo and the Billy Joel connection, which is just a, a beautiful, wonderful thing. And Carol King, who, you know, Taylor just inducted Carol King into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few days ago. Uh, Carol King, you know, like talk about, you know, productive songwriter at a white hot pace for an insanely long period of time, you know, just talked about, you know, like Taylor is carrying the torch forward, which is, you know, when it's Carol King saying that, that's a huge statement. And she's on the level of the all-time greats, but that she's been at that level for 15 years and keeps surging ahead at an increased level of productivity. I mean, you look at artists, you know, whether it's Lil Wayne or David Bowie, who had these, you know, three or four year spells where they were just like cranking it out. But she's she's never not been at that level. A little bit scary. She's also a huge nerd. That's the other thing to remember is like Taylor Swift is a huge, huge nerd. She like is someone who very much studies her her like music history or pop culture. Like she is like on top of it in a way where I think that allows more kind of creative inspiration like she really like soaks it all up and like wants to know more and like wants to like really analyze what she's feeling or like the thoughts that she has or the images that she has because you know we've talked about before too but a lot of her music even before it really started to shift perspective from like you know the perspective of like these like characters and things like that in folklore and evermore was a lot of it was steeped in fairy tale already. Like it was like placing herself in these scenarios. Like there's, she wrote love songs for multiple albums that weren't even about experiences. They were like fan fiction about herself and like, you know, like fantasy people. And like, you know, that's sort of the the fun part is that she's always kind of been able to place herself in those experiences and those stories. And so I think now that she's sort of seen like how well that's worked and how much fun that's been, we're kind of seeing like you mentioned earlier, like this like new era of her as a songwriter where she's like open this box that's not going to close anytime soon where she's realized what she's capable of as a, as a writer. It's two things. I mean, it's, it's the extending herself way beyond herself and writing about these characters, one. And two, the stepping outside of what people saw as the pop framework, but then redefining it as actually this is the pop framework now, which is I, I think that's musically that kicks open doors that are that we can't even see man um yeah. but but to to the point of her productivity you tore up the top of this list the the top of this list is now not exclusively but filled with stuff from the last few years i guess in your head you've kind of been realizing that as each of these albums comes out right that she's kind of literally topping herself in in your estimation she ripped up the top of the list, you know, like, and it was a thing where, you know, with folklore, it was a thing where like, wow, like, you know, I could have done half the top 20 from folklore. And then add in Evermore. It's almost like we have to give special credit to the ones before 2020. They have to almost get an extra push just because like, otherwise, I mean, she's definitely at the top of her art. The last two albums are, I would say, two of her three best along with Red. And that it's just you know, a crazy level of productivity. I mean, when I started making this list, I never once in my life thought that Holy Ground would ever be bumped from the top 10. I have to admit, I, I shed a tear within, you know, within my soul when, <laughs> when I realized that Holy Ground was not in the top 10 anymore. I was reminiscing just the other day While well, I haven't got the all alone And Lord, it took me away Back to a first glance feeling on New York yeah. Did it ricochet? <laughs> was the ricocheting of the tears? <laughs> the tears were ricocheting, yes. So what a ghostly scene. Um, and it was the kind of thing where the first time I did the list, our song was in the top 10, you know, which 
sentimentally, I loved having that in the top 10 because it was the first top, first song of hers I ever heard. It was the one that made me a fan. It was the first song of hers I fell in love with back in 2007. And he says, our song is a slam and scream door, snake and alley, tapping on your window. When we're on you know, now it's like in the 20s and it's not because the song has changed or the song has lessened or anything. It's just that her level of productivity has just, you know, has increased while her level of artistry has increased because she just refuses to stop writing these great songs. So it's kind of amazing to see that songs that were way up high on the original list keep getting moved around just because they have to make room. And even just like thinking about if you go from, if you told me when our song came out that, and you played Marjorie for me, and you told me that was by the same person, <laughs> it's not like I wouldn't totally believe it, but it would just be like, I'd be like, how did we get <laughs> from yeah. point A to point B? And it's kind of wild. Like, it's really like, a, you know, as like a fan and also just a person who enjoys good music, it's like a crazy trajectory that she's been on. And it's it's amazing to see that actual growth in 15 years time. Never be so kind, you forget to be clever. If we're counting down the top 10 of new stuff, Marjorie is number nine. And it's the greatest song about a grandma since Veronica and since Grandma's Hands. Uh, beautiful song, like also like extremely strange musically in terms of, you know, we, we've talked before about all the like different complex ideas going into that song that it began as such a, you know, Stephen Reich, Philip Glass kind of thing with all these pulsing synths. Some, some of the same musicians who did that sort of thing on Sifjan Stevens records a few years ago. But Marjorie is a song that feels like, you know, it's, it's supposed to sound like it's just somebody intimately just like strumming and making up as they go along, but incredibly calculated and complicated song. Yeah, we've gone from Tim McGraw to, to Steve Reich. <laughs> yes, uh, it's, it's... yes. <laughs> she should do a song like, when I think about Stephen Reich, I, I hope you think <laughs> of me. <laughs> when you hear four organs. But um, it's a song where also uh, it had such an immediate impact. I don't know about you guys, but I didn't know if it would have staying power. Sometimes like a song like has an immediate impact, but it's too sad for everyday listening or too heavy. And uh, that's not the way I felt at all. It's, it's a song that, you know, totally flows along with the album. It doesn't really overpower the other songs. So even though like I love that song right away, I, I'm always amazed at the staying power of that song. I feel like I had like the opposite experience where I like it was too sad for me to listen to it often, especially when you get to the opera, you hear like Marjorie's voice in the background. I was like, oh, yeah, not this. I can't cry in the middle of like my day. But I now I'm you. like it's I've eased into it being like a more sort of a regular when I listen to the album full, all the way through. I'm like, you know what? This is a very beautiful moment. And I've gained the strength to make it through Marjorie. <laughs> <laughs> we we all in our Marjorie journey, we, we all have moments where it's just too much, you know, because it's a very heavy song. Yeah. Um, I think we needed the time to process, at least I needed the time to process Evermore because it was a little bit of the amnesiac problem where it's just, you're still so, for me, it was like, I'm still so obsessed with the first one that I wasn't ready to fully open my heart to the second one. So it just took me a while to, and I think, I think your list does a, a great job of making the case for the greatness of the Evermore stuff. Number seven, speaking of making the case for the greatness is Lover. We could leave the Christmas lights up till January. And this is our- I was really happy to see stuff from that album really high as well. And the, the title track is just, uh, you know, I, I remember hearing it at the fan session where she, she played it for the fans. And that's where I first heard it. 
and uh, just watching like <laughs> just watching a room full of Swifties weep will always stay with me. Uh, beautiful song. Beautiful. Also, it was such a change of gears for her. It seems so weird to think that, you know, that was just a couple of years ago that like Lover was the new phase and everybody was so shocked by it. And but it's a thing where the first couple songs that she'd released from it were, you know, more electronic in, in the wake of you could imagine them going with with reputation. So for um you know, for this to be like, you know, just a romantic guitar ballad, the kind of song that she hadn't done in quite a while was uh, just so shocking and, and just wonderful song. Gains and gains over time for me. Yeah. And I mean, just for her, um, like I was saying earlier about like the songs in fantasy, like having her love songs become steeped in reality and come steeped in like the same sort of detail and like kind of moment laden songwriting that she made famous in her breakup songs, you know, like you're getting that same level of piercing detail that you get in All Too Well in her love songs now, as opposed to sort of them being about bigger feelings or kind of what she desires and what she's kind of hoping to get to. Like, that's what you're getting from Lover and this like really kind of beautiful intimacy. And I've returned to Lover a lot lately because I think that album has grown on me even more over the years. But I think that's sort of the beauty of a lot of the songs on there. And the whole thing about the return to the wooden floors, as she said, like that reputation was all shiny chrome surfaces. And this was, uh, you know, sort of a wooden barn. And you can really you can. In fact, it sounds like it was recorded in that in a barn. So Mm -hmm. there you go. And then number five, number five is August. And I can see his twisted in bed sheets. August slipped away like a bottle of wine. The love for that song was apparent pretty much right away. Absolutely. It. Phenomenal song. Also, it was about a year ago this time that she put out the Long Pond Studio Sessions, which is, I mean, it's funny because she was also, she, she was a couple of weeks away from putting out Evermore. So it kind of got overshadowed a bit. But just that album as an album, you know, just considered as like a live album, the performances of, of the Lover song, some of them are completely redefined. And those are like, you know, the performances. But, you know, the performance of August in that Aaron Dessner goes off on guitar the way he doesn't in the studio version. I mean, he does plenty of great playing in the studio version, but he has this phenomenal guitar solo. That, I mean, it's like really just amazing how that song just grows as with the live performance. The performance at the Grammys was amazing, too. Mm-hmm. The August sipped away like a bottle of wine bit will just like hit your heartstrings every time, <laughs> at least if every also, single also, time I hear it. That song is so targeting Britney being born in August. Like, <laughs> it came out right before my birthday, too. So it was a really, <laughs> you know, the pandemic birthday went from like lightly depressing to like, well, now I have a Taylor song for it. <laughs> Unbelievable. We all have so much to thank you for, Brittany. <laughs> and a lot of love for Delicate at number four. Dive bar on the east side, where you at? Phone lights at my nightstand in the black. I love that song. That's a song, you know, I love reputation. We love reputation in this, you know. This in, is a reputation in, in the, in stand dojo, community. In this dojo. In this yeah. dojo. In, in this dojo. We <laughs> we'll be yeah. ready for the reputation, like, reassessment yes. in a few this is, years. This is, this is a cell of reputation resistance. But yeah. As, as people who love that album when it was new, and it's funny that now, you know, it seems like the world has come around. And at this point, it's kind of like Kid A, where, like, nobody is admitting that they're the people who didn't like it when it came out. You know, it, some albums are just like that, that people are going to later adopt the revisionist thing that they like it now. And, and they're all welcome. Nobody's holding any grudges about that. But this song just like stood out right away. Just, you know, just like unbelievably beautiful song. 
on this beautiful album, but definitely like a song where all the themes of the album come together. Yeah. And this is the thing too, like we all know, especially for the sort of, once she kind of went into her pop stride, the single choices for the first single, not always the best choice, not the best song on the album, kind of like misdirects you from it. You know, if you told me that Lover was like the song Lover and the way it sounds was on the album that also released me as a single, I would have been like, what album are you talking about? So again, like that's another powerful part of folklore and Evermore. She has dropped the albums, no single, nothing like that. But like with this, once like hearing Delicate for the first time, I was just like, I cannot believe this is on the album that was led with Look What You Made Me Do, was led with a right set thread <laughs> interpolation of a single. I cannot believe this is on the same album. Oh, it's such a great, it's like one of my absolute favorite Taylor songs. It's like one of those songs where I have to stop everything and like listen to it in public whenever I hear it. It's just so good. I wish it was one of the first singles. It deserved way more in the same way that Cruel Summer should have been a single off of Lover, but I, I am not her A&R and I do not manage her, but that's just and, some thoughts I have. And then Drake goes ahead and does his own interpolation of the same song. I mean, song. the invisible string between Drake and Taylor Swift, we just... If he's not on the Reputation re-release, I'm gonna. If he's not on a From the Vault song, I'm gonna be so mad. <laughs> oh, that gold tattoo! Oh, that gold tattoo! Also, it's it's such a wintry song. It's funny that like that so many of her albums are autumn albums, but Reputation is such a wintry album. I I, I really love that. So it's it's coming on delicate time of year. Yeah. <laughs> and number three, number three is Mirrorball. I love Mirabal. You know, the songs from Folklore are so great that, you know, it, it's not like picking them out of a hat, but it's a thing where the competition for lover songs was intense. But once we get to Folklore and Evermore, it's, you know, just Mirabal, that to me is like, that's everything she's ever set out to say as a songwriter in one song. Mm-hmm. I loved the way she described it in the Long Pond Studio sessions as, you know, she's picturing this really sad bar late at night and there's this like really like sad disco ball on the floor and nobody dancing under it. And that's just a beautiful image. But, you know, you can hear that totally in the song and the sort of the, the yearning in the voice. And to jump out of the top 10 and it, we'll just continue looking at the newer stuff at the top until we run out of time. Cruel Summer, never released as a single at number 11. How are we going to explain this to future generations? I don't like, know. <laughs> she introduced it to the fans at the, you know, when she was basically world debuting it at the little session where she played it for the fans. That she herself described it as a bop. She knew what it was, and I don't know, like, of any song by anyone I've heard in the last ten years. I can't remember responding quicker to a song and just being like that. You know, like that's sort of like when you become the A and R guy and you're like that one, that one. You know, and it's just like, <laughs> and and yet not a single. I think my theory is that, you know, the album was released in August. She's supposed to do the pair of Loverfest shows in August of 2020. It was July and August 2020. I feel like it would have, in the same way that Delicate ended up being like a summer single during the tour, I feel like Cruel Summer was going to be that sort of like summer single right ahead of those shows. But of course, those shows did not happen. A pandemic hit. It, would, it was already a cruel summer in a lot of other ways, but maybe that would have made it appropriate, but not really. But like, you know, in my head, I would have loved to see it. And then we got Folklore, which is a good trade-off. 
I will say, Rob, that I really love what you say about the bridge where she, quote, takes off into a deranged greatest hits album worth of choruses from brilliant songs she hasn't written yet. It's like her little tiny Abbey Road medley, I guess. Absolutely. And and it's mind-blowing to me that that song got squeezed out of the top 10. It's at number 11. And yeah. It really yeah, I think you. you're. I think you're wrong, frankly. I think it. I think it needed to be in the top ten, but I understand. But you know, you know like it's, pretty good. Put Dear John. You can't move Dear John out of the top ten. That was. Where's that going to go? That was the thing. I'll. I'll tell you just in terms of like making the list and ordering it. Like insane bottleneck. Twelve, eleven, ten, and you could tell me that I'm wrong about any of those. I really thought right where you left me was top ten, and yet I was like, all that's in the way between right where you left me and the top ten is Cruel Summer and Dear John. And honestly, that's those are pretty mighty obstacles. But that particular three-song bottleneck, that was the hardest part of the whole list in terms of putting it in order, just because those songs are so colossal for me. Number 12 is a song that could easily be overlooked as a bonus track on Evermore. But speaking of the country accent, it returns. The southern accent returns on this really sweet song right where you left me friends break up friends get married strangers get born strangers get buried trends change rumors i like this song very much it would not have occurred to me to put it so high but i'm intrigued and i see your argument rob unbelievable it's so tense you know like Mm -hmm. it just keeps building and building and you know it's so sad there's almost something hypnotic and obsessive about the way aaron desner plays that banjo loop over and over again it's weird, like it's, it almost feels like, you know, like a techno industrial song that's just played on a banjo. But the sadness of it is so overwhelming. And I love, there's a section like halfway through where the song pauses and then there's a dream sequence where it seems like everything's gonna work out. And that always reminds me of the specific Springsteen song, which is kind of a deep cut. I, it's one of my favorite Springsteen songs. It always reminds me of Downbound Train, which is a song I think should be a lot more famous than it is. but. I listened to Right Where You Left Me, and I think, you know, Springsteen did the best one of these up till now. But the, the <laughs> mid-song dream sequence acapella bit, you know, and then it all comes crashing down. What a devastating song. Last night I heard your voice, you were crying, crying, you were so alone. We need to make a comprehensive list of all of the Taylor songs we've compared to Bruce Springsteen songs <laughs> from our parents. I feel like we've all done it. <laughs> I feel like we need to make Absolutely. a list comprehensively with like all of them. I'm like almost having to physically muzzle myself to not talk about Downbound Train for 10 minutes. But after that, but, <laughs> but uh, I will say that Dave Marsh inexplicably declared that the worst song on Born in the USA. And, I, and I've, I've never, because he was mad that the narrator has too many jobs in the song. <laughs> I swear that was anyway because he works at the car wash, you know. And then he, you know, he had a lot of different, you know. Look, he, it, it was the guy had a lot it of happens. jobs. It, was a, it, happens. it happens, you know. Uh, okay, that's a choice. That's a choice. You know, we all made choices in the '80s that we regret. I'm sure that's one of Dave Marsh's. That it's weird that that's the zone of the list. You know, twelve, eleven, ten. You know, right where you left me at number twelve, cruel summer at number eleven, dear John at number ten. When, it, when I go back and reread the list, it's funny that I always come back to that zone and I play it differently in my head. And I'm like, what if I did? That, that, that's the part that I'm still sort of uh, going back to over and over in, in my head. But that's a, and they, very close. They also kind of like are the three main modes of Taylor, right? Like you get like the big epic power ballad, which is Dear John, which, you know, makes sense. And again, like if you take it out of the top 10, then John Mayer wins and no one wants that. And then you have Cruel Summer, which is the big, like, fun, 
pop song with the like crazy bridge, really upbeat, coalesces like 1989 reputation and lover into one with that sound. And then you have Right Where You Left Me, which is like the really like, you know, like the a bit of a smaller, softer like set ballad than Dear John, but still like really cuts you deep in a way that you're not expecting. And by the end of your song, you're like, well, damn. I feel like those are like the three <laughs> three modes of Taylor. Such a brilliant point. That really is. Those songs, they each, you know, like everything she does is in those three songs. Yeah. And then I think the next new one is at number 16. And could not have called it when you last did the list that one of the top 20 songs would be a duet with Matt from The National. Do you miss the rogue who coaxed you into paradise and left you there? Unbelievably great song. It's weird yeah. that this one seems to be a bit divisive among fans, but I, you know, this song I just think is just absolutely powerful. I love it. It is my absolute favorite from Evermore. It is a song that I listen to on repeat the most, probably. And Evermore I listen to a lot, but this is the song that brings me back to it constantly. I just love this duet. Their voices sound incredible together. The lyrics are just like so weird. It's like very much like not the, a typical way that Taylor would write a song, you know, just kind of like a bunch of loose thoughts almost, but it works so, it, it's, you know, it's kind of like almost like the national style of writing, which is just like a bunch of random phrases kind of put together. <laughs> and like, it works so well. <laughs> In the same way that New Romantics kind of feels like Rob specifically willed it into existence and or Taylor wrote it to make Rob happy, unclear. When I first heard about folklore and the fact that it was so much of it was Aaron Desner, I was like, this is crazy because I had heard that she was a fan of the national and had seen them in Brooklyn, et cetera, et cetera. I was just like, a, I literally had sort of had a musical fantasy of what that collaboration would be like. And then she actually did it for two albums and it was amazing. And it was just, I, I could not, it's so rare that something like that actually happens that <laughs> a thought you had actually manifests into the world in such spectacular fashion. So I, I think the fact that it went so far as this duet just exemplifies the wild insanity that we got this treat. I love like going back in time 10 years ago when two of my favorite albums of, of 2010 were Her Speak Now and The Nationals High Violet. And like <laughs> loving both those albums and thinking, yeah, like imagine like, and you know, 10 years from now, nobody will even bat an eye the fact that those artists <laughs> just made two albums together. Just unbelievable. <laughs> We should talk before we go about number 17, which is a song I, I just absolutely love, uh, The Last Great American Dynasty. Rebecca rode up on the afternoon train. It was sunny. Her salt box house on the- I also love that the more you research the woman she wrote about, which is Rebecca, who owned the house that she lives in. You could write another song about how Rebecca was a total asshole because because there's a lot of there's there's some there's some evidence for that in the the real life Rebecca. But I love that she found this version, Taylor's version of Rebecca, where you just fall in love with this woman, and obviously the degree to which she's identifying with her and, and really talking about herself. But the way she compresses all this information to the narrative is I, I think it's just really a lyrical masterpiece. We need the Rhode Island Ghost Stories album from Taylor Swift. Like we already have Starlight. We have this. Like where where is just like a full on like she's telling a bunch of old stories from like Rhode Island lore in an album because that's what I would like. Absolutely. Her next album, Ocean State. 
just Rhode Island concept album. It'll be a song about Polly G. You were you're into the song from the beginning. It seems like this is a song that it seemed like a lot of people thought that this would be like sort of a, a gimmick song because like then the twist like oh, this lady had this house and then it was bought by me and that that was such a I love that I was kind of I was like watching a movie I was like oh it's a twist <laughs> we're in the house the whole time <laughs> but boy it really sticks the story is great but also this it's funny because this is like the fun song on folklore like this is like the bop on the album it begins yeah. with that little piano intro ding ding, ding and I think like, ooh, this one, I love this one. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is the one about a lonely old widow who is like walking along the beach by herself late at night because all her friends come and drink her champagne and then go back to the city, leaving her alone to howl on the rocks by herself. And I'm like, this is the fun change of pace pop on the album, but that's something, yeah. so much going on in the song musically and emotionally. I just love it. This is peak nerd behavior. Who owned my house before me? Let me write a song about them. This is nerd this is a nerd behavior. And, and let me make it one of the greatest <laughs> songs I've ever written. There's a couple moments, just moments of delivery in that song that just stay with me. I just love the way she sings It Was Sunny at the beginning. I don't know what mm-hmm. it is, but it's just a it's just a scene setter and the the wistfulness of the delivery gets to me every time. And then just the boys and the champagne, like that delivery is just kills me every time. I absolutely worship this song. And I I think that, you know, if I wanted to play something for someone who's being old and grumpy and doesn't understand the greatness of Taylor Swift and has totally wrong ideas and really is into lyrics and stuff, I I would, in fact, basically the boomers who still think of like Taylor Swift as pop fluff when we cover her or when we do an episode uh, here and they're like, why are they so into Taylor Swift? It's like, I defy anyone to listen to that and not just sort of bow down to the mastery. I truly defy them. This is really like a, it's like a Nora Ephron, like of songwriting. It feels like very like autumnal and like also just kind of cozy. You're turning Rebecca Harkness into a Meg Ryan character. Like it's like beautiful. It's really, it's just chef's kiss. <laughs> God, that's a perfect analogy. It's like in her shoes or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So that is today's Rolling Stone music. Now we could return to Taylor Swift's catalog and we will return to Taylor Swift's catalog. Just as I promised, we're going to do more episodes about the 500 greatest songs of all time, which occasionally has some Taylor in it as well. But thanks so much to Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield for making sure we did not go a full year without a Taylor episode. Maybe we'll get another shot. Who knows? Maybe if something comes out, we don't know anything. Don't don't get excited, Swifties. It's just a dream. But we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That is super appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.